the stage. He's going to come and he's going to preach part three on this sermon series, Jesus, the champion of his church. And this sermon's all about humility. Welcome, Pastor Rex. All right. We're glad you're here today. I want to warn you, this topic is for mature audiences only. This is for people who are serious about being real disciples of Jesus. Jesus Christ said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you really believe that? I, I, don't, I don't really think we do. In fact, I'm pretty convinced we definitely don't believe that. We're into competition and self-promotion and image management and status seeking. We want people to know who we are. I uh, read recently about a pretty self-absorbed chief executive officer of a big company Great title and position, a fabulous paycheck he received. And he went to a hotel ballroom where his company was having their annual meeting. And he was stopped at the door to the ballroom by a uniformed guard who was <laughs> about 6'5 and well-muscled. And he said, sir, I need to check the guest registry to see if you're on it. And... Uh, the CEO sputtered, don't you know who I am? No, sir, said the guard, but as soon as I find out, I'll let you know, all right? And that's, that's us, isn't it? Don't you know who I am? I'm an important person. I have a title. I'm a, I'm a somebody. And if we're not careful, our sense of importance, our image, our authority can go to our head. I heard about a man who had a little mole on his chin that he wanted to get simply removed. And so he went to one of these kind of medical center day clinic places to get that removed. And he met a, just a pit bull of a nurse. She was dogmatic and dictatorial. And she immediately said, down the hall, first door on the right, take off all your clothes. He was stunned. He said, ma'am, I don't think that's necessary. I just, she said, down the hall, first door on the right, take off all your clothes. He said, whoa, wait a minute, ma'am, I just got this mole. She said, down the hall, first door on the right, take off all your clothes. So he gave in, went down, entered the room, and there in the room was a man sitting on a chair in his boxer shorts, shivering. Guy said, man, that's the meanest nurse I've ever met. The guy said, tell me about it. I'm the UPS driver, right? <laughs> you know, if we're not careful, a little bit of authority can go to our head. And we think, look, I'm an important person. I've got power here, and I'm going to wield it. And pride can take over, and humility goes out the window. Well, we read a passage today in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus has an interaction with some Pharisees and they weren't particularly known for their humility. Their sense of importance, authority, honestly had gone to their head. And yet, I think we can learn some positive lessons from their negative example. We can learn some things about this important quality called 
humility and how God exalts the humble, but he brings down the proud. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this. He wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I like that. It doesn't mean that we have a horrible self-image. It doesn't mean that we think we're just pitiful. No, it means having a sane estimation of who we are in light of what God has said about us and in light of who he is. So again, as we jump in now to this passage in Luke 14, I want you to know, I just, I just believe this is a hard one. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction here. I believe this cuts against the grain of our society so much that most of us, unless we're really, really open to what God wants to do in our life, most of us are going to struggle in applying today's message. It may be the most counter-cultural chapter in all of the New Testament. So let's jump in and see what it has to say. I've, in studying this, come up with three declarations, three principles, if you will, that I believe summarize the essence of today's passage. Number one, choose people over man-made policies. People over man-made policies. Let's dive in. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. That Greek word there, translated carefully watched, means he was being scrutinized. He was being gazed at. It means they were literally looking for something wrong that they could pick on. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, I'll bet you've not used the word dropsy or heard of anyone who has that. Today, we call that condition edema is what it's usually called. It's where one of the internal organs, often it's the kidneys, aren't functioning properly. And so the body builds up fluids in the chest cavity, around the heart, in the lungs, and so on, and in the connective tissues, the ankles, feet, legs may swell up unusually large. And so this man is not only sick, he's probably terminally ill. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Now let's get the setting here. This is a dinner party. But this isn't like friends chilling and relaxing and just kicking back having a nice meal together. No, Jesus is being set up. Now remember, already... He has violated their Sabbath regulations on seven different occasions. Let me just mention a few of those to you. I looked each of them up. He cast out a demon in Luke 4. He healed a fever in Luke 4. He allowed his disciples to pluck grain that we read about in Luke 6. He healed a lame man in John's Gospel, chapter 5. He healed a man with a withered, paralyzed hand in Luke 6 that we've already studied. He delivered a crippled woman who was afflicted by a demon. We looked at that two or three weeks ago. 
and he healed a man born blind, as recorded in John 9. Now, why was that a problem? Because the Pharisees, this group of religious leaders, this sect within Judaism, they had determined that to heal someone on the Sabbath was breaking the law. Now, that's not what the scriptures had said in the Mosaic law. You can go back and search the law of Moses all you want, and you won't find that. God had never said it's wrong to heal someone on the Sabbath day. But it was simply a man-made stipulation that the religious leaders had added to the law. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands that part. Jesus Christ never violated a scriptural command that God the Father had given, that he had revealed to people. He always kept the scriptures. In fact, he said, heaven earth will pass away, my word will never pass away. In speaking of the Old Testament law, he said, not one jot or tittle, not one little stroke of a pen of this Old Testament law is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. That was his attitude about it. What we're talking about here is man-made policies that they had put on top of the law. And Jesus pretty frequently violated those, and that was making these leaders mad. As the synagogue ruler from a couple of weeks ago said so gruffly, you got six other days in the week, come and be healed on one of those days. Because Jesus was cramping their style. So they've set the trap, and they believe they've caught it. But Jesus turned the trap on them. He confounded them with a single question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now think about the trap they're in. This is why they couldn't answer. If they said yes, then people would have seen them as utter hypocrites because they knew how picky and stringent their little man-made laws were. But if they said, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they would have seemed to be utterly, utterly unconcerned about human suffering. I mean, even their own stipulations had said if, it, it, it had said if, if your you know, animal needs rescuing or helping on the Sabbath, you can do that. So if they'd said, no, you can't heal, they would have been putting care for animals even ahead of care for humans. So Jesus turned the trap on them, and they said nothing. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen in your life a situation where man-made religious policies, maybe in a church or organization, actually stood in the way of people being genuinely helped? I would suggest to you that it happens quite a bit, indeed, still today. And here's where I think organizations... Churches, any kind of ministry group needs to be careful as time goes on, we develop these styles, these manners, these methods of doing it. We have to. You have to have some kind of methodology, uh, the way you do things, some kind of policies. That is essential to have. But over time, they can become sacred cows, if you know what I mean. And Eventually, we believed, oh, there's no way we can ever change this, when in reality, a growing, healthy organization ought to be regularly changing its man-made policies. 
because they grow threadbare and obsolete at times. And as dynamics change, we need to change the way we do things, never changing God's law. We can't do that. But we need to change our styles and methods and manners so that we can minister to people more effectively. But I want to tell you, friends, and if you've ever been a leader in an organization where you tried to bring that change, you know it's hard to do. Because people are legendary for not being able to tell the difference between one of God's principles and a man-made policy or method or style. And so we make sacred cows out of the things that we have created. John Maxwell tells of a couple of college business professors who conducted an experiment with monkeys. Let me tell you about it. He says, four monkeys were placed in a room. And they had a tall pole and the center. And at the top of the pole, there was a bunch of bananas. The monkeys naturally wanted to get to those bananas. And as soon as they closed the door, one monkey started climbing his way to the top. But just as he reached the top, was about to grab a banana, he was doused with a cold shower of water that sent him squealing and scampering back down the pole. He came down and he abandoned his attempt to get the bananas. Each monkey made a similar attempt, climbing the pole. And just as they were reaching out to grab a banana, each one would be doused with a cold shower of water, very uncomfortable. And after making several attempts, they finally gave up. Then the researchers removed one of the monkeys from the room and replaced him with a new monkey. And as the newcomer would come in, begin to climb up the pole, the other three would come over and pull him back down. They wouldn't let him even go up there. They didn't want to see him get doused. <laughs> and after trying to climb the pole several times and being dragged down by the others, he would finally give up and would never attempt to climb the pole again. And so the researchers, researchers replaced all the original monkeys one by one. And each time a new monkey was brought in, he would be dragged down by the others before he could even reach the bananas. Now get this. In time, the room was filled with monkeys who had never been doused by the water, but they still wouldn't climb the pole and they didn't know why. Listen, whenever a church gets to the point of saying, we can't climb higher, we've always done it this way, we can't change, it is on the verge of stagnation and demise. And that's what was really happening with ancient Judaism at this point. They had developed structures and man-made policies that were actually keeping them from helping people. And whenever church leaders are afraid to climb the pole, as it were, and try something new and reach higher in the ministry because they've allowed others to pull them down, it's time for a much-needed wake-up call. It's time for genuine renewal. The Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all people so that I might by all possible means save some. So if you're a leader today, Please hear this message loud and clear. Whether you're a leader at Grace and or a leader in other venues and places, please remember, never make sacred cows out of your policies. Sacred cows make some pretty good hamburger, all right? Sometimes you just 
need to grind them up, get rid of them. Sometimes you need to change the policies. If they're human policies, you need to change them in order for progress to happen. Secondly, our text today, if you really want to be exalted in God's eyes, and again, this is such a mature topic. Jesus teaches here that we should choose humility over self-promotion. Humility over self-promotion. Now, I believe that self-promotion is the name of the game in our world. That's why I say chapter 14 of Luke may be the most countercultural chapter in all the New Testament. We're competitive. We want to be number one. We like to jockey for position. We want to let everybody know how great we are. And if nobody else will toot our horn for us, we're very glad to toot it ourselves. It's unbelievable the lengths that people go to to try to convince you how wonderful and how great they are. It's intoxicating to feel like you're the center of the universe. And yet in the midst of a culture like that where that's the M.O. of virtually everyone, God comes along and says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. God comes along and says through the apostle Peter, look, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. What a challenging task that is. So let's read on in today's passage, starting in verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. <laughs> For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I've been a student of human nature now for a number of decades. <laughs> Somebody said to me early on, Rex, there's two things you need if you're going to be effective in ministry. And I, and I believed them. And here's the two things they said. You got to really know the Bible and you got to really know people. And boy, I, I bought that like it was, it was gospel truth. And I, I still believe that was great advice. You know what I'm saying? You want to be effective, you got to really know the Bible and you got to really know people. Now, here's what I've concluded about people. Okay, just Rex Keener's conclusion after many, many years of studying human nature. Here it is. Everybody wants to feel important. Do you hear that? Hey, you want to you wanna be a success in this world? Do you? If you can make the people around you in an authentic, genuine way, feel valued, feel important, whether you're in the world of politics, in the world of business, whatever it is, if you can make people feel important, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be a huge success. Because everybody, it's like we got this sign over our says, please make me feel important. 
We want to be valued. We want to feel like our lives matter, like somebody esteems us. That's just human nature, of course. And I want to say to you as well that if you can't do that, if there's something about the way you interact with people that makes them feel devalued and disrespected and unimportant, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be a big failure. How's that for straightforwardness? You've got to honor people. You've got to help them feel important. And if you don't do that over time, and you continue to make them feel disrespected, they may even begin to feel bitter toward you and have to battle anger. Well, it was very similar back then, of course. The people in Jesus' day had a strong sense of status. Here's how it worked. If you went to like a a wedding banquet or any other kind of major event, uh, the host would be at the head table and the person to the host left would be the most honored person in the place. And to the right of the host was the next most honored person. And so when you came in, everybody was aware of this pecking order and so they scrambled for the most important seats. Bible commentator Warren Wearsby writes, when Jesus advised the guests to take the lowest places, he was not giving them a gimmick that guaranteed promotion. The false humility that takes the lowest place is just as hateful to God as the pride that takes the highest place. God's not impressed by our status in society or in the church. He's not influenced by what people say or think about us because he sees the thoughts and motives of the heart. I, I think we'd all agree it's, it's hard, though, to humble yourself. John Ortberg, the popular writer, facetiously says, I, I want to be humble, but, but what if no one notices, right? And that's the rub. That's, that's what we all feel. Oh, I want to be humble, of course, because I know God honors that, but oh, what if nobody notices that I'm really humble? Then I'll be unnoticed and unapplauded and unrewarded. If you go to the track in Saratoga and you got these nice box seats, you know what, I'll bet you tell a lot of people about it. But years ago when you sat in the normal bleachers or stood, you didn't tell many people about that, did you? That's just human nature, that's pride. Or when you go out uh, w- with your office, the people in your office, and, and it's, a, it's kind of a luncheon with the boss, what do you do? do? Do you kind of play the game that most people play and try to position yourself close to the boss so you can have her ear throughout the luncheon conversation? Or are you just contented just to be there? You see, we love the attention. We revel in making connections with the influential. But here's what I know about the people that God uses and honors. They are men and women who are authentically humble, and they don't toot their own horn very much. And so I would urge you, as you come to church, when you come to worship in any of our campuses and you want to really make a difference and add value to people, here's what it requires. You need to check your ego at the door. 
No matter how important and influential you are out there, no matter how powerful you are out there, no matter how many titles or what kind of paycheck you have out there, check your ego at the door because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And can I tell you what else I would suggest? That when you then leave this place after you've worshiped, you know what? I would suggest you check your ego then as well. Because honestly, in the long run, it's those people who are genuinely humble that eventually inherit the earth. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. And when you have great strength, but you've harnessed that with humility, trust me, friend, you eventually will have a powerful influence in this world, and God will honor that humility in a great way. So here's the deal, and one of the reasons I said this is such a challenging teaching today, because the Bible repeatedly says things to us that test, are you hearing me, that test our humility. Can I, I try a few of them on you? Repent and be baptized. What's your attitude toward that? Ah, well, yeah, I've repented of my sin, but I don't, you know what? I don't look good when my hair's wet. I don't think, it's humiliating to me. I don't want to do that. Or is your attitude, you know, whatever God says, whatever the Lord wants me to do, he has done so much for me. I'm going to honor him. Or let me try another one on you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What's your attitude about that? Is your attitude, oh no, here they go talking about money again? Or is your attitude, wow, God is the owner of everything. He's been so gracious, so generous to me. He's forgiven all my sins. Naturally, naturally, I want to be generous and honor him with all that he's given me and entrusted to me. Or here's another one. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. What's your attitude about that? Ain't no man gonna tell me what to do. <laughs> or, you know what? Even though that goes against my instincts, you know what? I'm gonna lean into that and I'm gonna seek to honor God as a godly wife and discover the power that comes through that. Or how about this one? Husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, you know, that's just not me. Nobody ever taught me how to be romantic. And, uh, you know, I just don't now know how to show affection and be loving and really be a servant heart. So that's just who I am. And she's just got to live with it. Or is your attitude, you know what? That is one of the greatest challenges I'll ever face, but I'm going to do everything I can to cherish my wife for the precious treasure that she is and let her know how cherished and loved she is in my life. I'm telling you folks, read any chapter you want to in Scripture, and you're going to find command after command, challenge after challenge that test our humility. That's why I would say to you, this is the most countercultural chapter in the Bible. Humility is one of those qualities that God esteems the highest. And there are little opportunities that come along every day 
where we can choose humility over self-promotion. Becky Pippert tells a story about a young college boy who had never been in church before, but he'd been saved through a campus ministry. Never been in a church. He had no idea what he was about to get into. And so one Sunday morning, he'd just newly saved. He thought, I'm, I'm going to go to a church around here. So he chose one that was kind of a high liturgical church, very proper and formal. And he walked in wearing what he always wore every day, torn jeans and uh, a, a, a t-shirt, and he didn't have any shoes on that day. He was barefoot. He walked in, and people immediately stared at him, and he started looking for a seat, but nobody, as he walked down the aisle, nobody would move over and actually offer him a seat. And so he just kind of kept walking and got close to the front. Nobody was willing to interact or move over. And finally, this young college man just went to the front and just kind of sat down on the carpet. Now, that would have been totally appropriate as at his college fellowship. That's usually what they did. But in this high-brow church, that made everybody feel a little nervous and a little awkward. And so about that moment, as the awkwardness was at a, a peak, an older gentleman from the back got up and everybody stiffened because they could just imagine this awkward tap on the shoulder as this old gentleman walked down to the front making a beeline for that young college student. And they just knew that he was going to give him a mean, mean look and put him in his place. But to their surprise, this dignified Christian gentleman walked down and even though it was difficult for him, he knelt down and sat beside the young college man throughout the whole service, and everybody could see him mouth the words, we're so glad you're here. And by the end of that worship service, Becky Pippert says there was not a dry eye in the congregation. That elderly man humbled himself, and I'll guarantee you, he was exalted in God's eyes. Choose people over man-made policies Choose humility over self-promotion. There's one final principle in today's passage, and oh, this is only for the most mature, but God wants us all to get there. This is only for the most Christ-centered people, but see if God would put this challenge on your heart. Choose future reward over present reward. And folks, I want to tell you, if there's ever a principle that'll challenge you to the core in what you really believe. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really be, believe Jesus? This may be the one. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. You go, gee, that's what I was hoping they'd do, right? No, he says, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, some of you are really nervous right now. You're reading that and going, is that for real? I mean, really? Are we, are we still supposed to apply that literally? I mean... I mean, pastor, come on, that, that would wreck our family life if we practiced that. And some of you are thinking, oh no, and especially the Italians are thinking this right now, oh no, 
we can't get together at Ma's house this Sunday afternoon. Is that what Jesus is saying here? And the Irish are really nervous because it's all about life together, right? And doing life together with friends and family. And I think every ethnicity feels that way. Well, first of all, let me tell you, I don't think Jesus is saying here, hey, look, you know your family and friends that you get together with often? You can't do that anymore. I don't think he's saying that. I think the point here is don't exclusively and habitually hang with people who are just going to turn right around and do something nice for you. You pat them on the back, they pat you on the back. You invite them, they invite you. And soon you develop this little mutual admiration society and it evolves into this banal tit for tat and you're trying to outdo each other with compliments and good favors. Jesus says break out of that. Break out of that cycle. It's fine to have your friends and family. Keep them close. Cherish them. But do some things with some people who can't pay you back. Now get this part. Because you can't get your reward twice. Please don't turn there now. But when you go home, if you want your mind blown, read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 1 through 18, and three times there, Jesus talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. And three different times, in all three of those subjects, he says, and your father who sees what is done in secret, your father who sees what is done in secret, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Choose future reward over present reward. By the way, I think that's what's behind that mysterious little verse we read uh, sometime back, Luke 13, 30, where Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Some of the folks that you believe are going to be leading the band in heaven, you're going to have trouble finding them. And some of the folks that you don't even know about, who are faithfully, secretly, Serving God, not because they're ashamed, no, because they're trying to follow what Jesus said and be humble in their servanthood. They're going to be leading the band in heaven. So let me ask you this Do you ever practice disciplines of secrecy? You say, Pastor, I don't even know what that is. What are you talking about? Disciplines of secrecy are where we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. In fact, we may even take steps to prevent them from being known as long as it doesn't involve deceit. Let me read this passage to you from Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. I go back to this probably every two or three months. I have done this for years. I love this passage that much. Boy, it's a challenge for me, and I'm going to leave you with this today. But let me read it to you the way Dallas Willard writes it. Secrecy, rightly practiced, enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. Wouldn't that be a relief? You quit worrying about self-promotion. You quit worrying about tooting your own horn. You just leave that in the hands of God. Doesn't mean you don't have a resume. That's a thing you probably are going to need. But you, you don't seek to just promote yourself and toot your own, own horn and let people know how wonderful you are. Leave that in the hands of God, who lit our candles so we could be the light of the world. Not so we could hide under a bushel 
We allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. I read on. Secrecy at its best teaches love and humility before God and others. And that love and humility encourages us to see our associates in the best possible light. Even to the point of our hoping, and this is the, this is the reason I go back and read this every couple of months. Even to the point of hoping they will do better and appear better than us. It actually becomes possible for us to follow Philippians 2, 3, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. And what a relief that can be. If you want to experience the flow of love as never before, Dallas Willard writes, the next time you're in a competitive situation, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, and more used of God than yourself. Really pull for them and rejoice for their successes. If Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would soon be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Give it a try. You may be amazed. Father, thank you for a chapter that on first blush doesn't feel real good because it feels a little too hard to do. It's so countercultural, we have trouble even wrapping our minds around it. But help us to find that freedom and that rush of love from you that comes when we actually esteem others ahead of ourselves. We actually pray for you to use them in a greater way than you use us. And as our brother Dallas Willard writes, I pray that as we do that, this world would just be flooded with the knowledge of your glory like the waters cover the sea. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to a standard that is beyond anything we could do in our own strength. Thank you that you call us higher to really honor you with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Rex. I'm going to